Hey, friends, welcome to today's show. We've got an awesome guest named David Green. And I first heard about him through one of my oldest friends, Blake Edwards. David is the host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, which is all about real estate investment. He's written a few different books about it. Now, I'm sure you're asking, why a real estate investment guy on the Kyle Kingsbury podcast? As you know, I've been branching out, trying to get different folks on here to optimize every avenue of life. And one of the things that stuck out to me about David is his particular insights around mindset. And this has made him not only one of the most successful people in real estate, but one of the best people to work for, according to my boy, Blake Edwards. So after some uh, long conversations around getting this guy on, we finally met up with each other here in Austin and had an amazing podcast. Definitely one of my favorites. So as you always hear from me, there are a few ways that you guys can support this show. Number one, leave us a five-star rating. At the end of this month, October 31st on Halloween, I will be selecting one of you who has left a five-star review and one or two ways that the show has helped you in life. And the grand prize winner will have their message read and will get a 30-minute Zoom call with me answering any and all questions you have. So make sure you do that. Also click subscribe so that way you never miss an episode. We're running two a week right now. I don't know how long that'll last. It's certainly going to be all the way through 2019. Uh, may scale back a little bit, not quite to one a week, but maybe back to six a month, something like that in 2020. Anywho, that's where we're at. Don't miss an episode. And then of course, support our sponsors. We've got some really good sponsors. First and foremost, my dudes from Wave. I've searched high and low for the very best CBD on the planet, and these guys are it. They have a 100% USDA certified organic farm in Colorado, but their business is based here in Austin, and I like local dudes. I also like the fact that they use 100% CO2 extraction, meaning there's no nasty solvents or chemicals or additives in their product. There's even no sweetener. These guys just run it clean. They have a natural flavor that's unsweetened. They have cinnamon, which is my favorite, and lemon, which is also really good. They've also got some really cool novel products coming out that are water-based and water-soluble, which means you can drink them in a soda can. All sorts of cool stuff. Creams, you can get 10% off at wave.com slash Kyle. That's W-A-A-Y-B.com slash Kyle. This show is also brought to you by Onnit's brand new HydroCore bag. Now, I got a chance to play with one of these things with Aubrey in what turned out to be a fucking grueling workout with the guy who invented it this brilliant man from Italy who's actually in his 50s and could train us under the table. Like, no bullshit. This dude's done it all. And he really has mastered the Bulgarian bag. The thing that makes this cooler, in my opinion, than the Bulgarian bag is the fact that there's the water element. And you can fill this all the way to the top to make it extra heavy. But it turns out if you leave a little extra space in there, the water dynamic makes all the difference in the world. Because now it's affecting your balance, your core, your feet. Everything's different. And you really have to master the bag differently. But there's a million different exercises. We've got a ton of them at the onitacademy.com. And this bag is amazing because you can travel with it. And you empty out the water, fill it full of water when you get to your destination. And you've got something you can take anywhere in the world with you. It's one of my favorite toys. You can get 10% off at onit.com slash Kyle. This show is also brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox makes it easy to get high quality, humanely raised meat that you can trust. Every month, ButcherBox delivers 100% grass-finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage-breed pork, and wild Alaskan salmon directly to your door, and shipping is free. The incredible quality of ButcherBox meat starts with a commitment to humanely raised animals that are never given antibiotics or added hormones. This is the highest quality meat you can get by far, 
at a fraction of the price that you'd buy in the store. By taking out the middleman and purchasing directly from a collective of ranchers, ButcherBox is able to buy meat at a lower cost and pass those savings on to you. Choose from four curated boxes or customize your own box so you can get exactly what you love and your family loves. So check this out. These guys are running a really cool deal right now. For two pounds of 100% grass-fed beef, free in every box for life. That's for the life of your subscription, plus $20 off your first box. Go to butcherbox.com slash Kingsbury or enter promo code Kingsbury at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash Kingsbury. And you're going to get two pounds of 100% grass-fed beef in every box for as long as you keep the subscription. Pretty damn good deal these guys are doing. And last but not least, we've got our guys Felix Gray. You may not realize it, but the average American blasts their eyes with bright screens for 11 hours of day. And you think about it. Consider how much our day revolves around our devices. Let's see. I got all the Apple products, iPhone, iMac, iPad. I'm on my phone, checking Instagram. I'm on my phone working. I'm handling emails. I get home. I watch Netflix. All this stuff bombards us with this. And the truth is, when you think about blue blockers, I don't want to look like a dork. I'm not trying to have giant orange or red lenses and walk around that just advertise, hey, I'm a biohacker. I don't want that shit. I think of uh, really good-looking glasses that get the job done. Felix Gray is them. They're the best in the business. The majority of Americans live with red, tired, dry eyes, blurry vision, or headaches caused by screens. If this sounds familiar, Felix Gray glasses are for you. They filter out 90% of high-energy blue light and eliminate 99% glare coming from your daily barrage of screens. And unlike other blue light filtering glasses, Felix Gray uses proprietary blue light technology embedded into the lens, as opposed to a cheap coating that can easily chip or scratch over time. What's cool too is these guys do prescription lenses or regular. They have dark glasses for the sunshine and they have regular glasses for indoors. They do it all. So check them out. Go to felixgrayglasses.com slash Kyle for free shipping and 30 days of risk-free returns or exchanges. That's felixgrayglasses.com slash Kyle. felixgrayglasses.com slash Kyle. All right, y'all. That's it for our sponsors today. Please check out this show. I had a great time. I know you guys are going to learn a lot. Even if you have absolutely no interest in investing in real estate, you're going to learn a lot from David Green and myself on this one. Thank you guys for tuning in. Yeah, he said you weren't you weren't super down with the police thing. I, I want to get no, to your no, background. But, totally fine. But as with most good Tarantino movies, they start in the middle and then they circle back to the beginning. So we were just talking about the difference between, uh, you know, we're both from the Bay Area. Uh, and you know, you come here to Austin and it says, keep Austin weird and how comical that is because it's not really weird. It's not weird by Bay area standards and talking about Portland, Portland is certainly weird and they have a keep Portland weird. Yep. And, uh, you know, I was talking about this story where I was standing in line at voodoo donuts and this lady freaked out on two guys standing there panhandling and I get up to the guys and I'm like, these guys are 10 years younger than me. Like you have a fucking sound mind, sound body. There's not a damn reason you should be here begging for money or a donut, you know, Hey man, let me get five bucks. Hey man, let me just get a donut, you know, and then asking for specific donuts, like going as far as <laughs> they wanted the jelly filled with raspberry. And it's like, fucking beat it. And the two guys, finally, they have enough people turn them down. They leave in a brand new Subaru Outback. And I was like, this is Portland. Like this is some shit yeah. you would never see anywhere else. Not to, you know, shit on Portland. I love it. I love B-Town and it certainly is weird, but by, you know, when you come here to Austin and they say, keep Austin weird, you're like, oh, that's like right-wing standard of weird. That's yeah. the rest of Texas standard of weird. That's yes. the South standard of weird. That's what Austin is. Compared it's, to where we're from, this is yeah. not weird at all. This is no. actually pretty tame. 
Yeah. Know? Even even like the the homeless people that were walking around in Austin that everybody's so upset with. I'm like, they're really well behaved compared to what you see in San Francisco. There's no one chasing you around with a needle or yeah 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 i I forget where it is like dotty's true blue cafe in uh the tenderloin and it was on diners drive-ins and dives and i've eaten there a few times but you stand in line and you're in the thick of the tenderloin you know and you got people coming up like what's up sugar i like bald man you know (laughs) it's like whoa okay all right somebody does right i think it's a good uh, example of the group of people that you hang out with is much more important than most people understand or naturally understand because you're going to take on the ideals the mindset of people around you so those guys that were at voodoo donuts growing up in a culture like how portland is it's totally normal to say hey let's go stand outside for a couple hours and try to get ourselves a couple donuts where you and i would say you got a, a nice Subaru. Why don't you go Uber for two hours, make yourself 50 bucks, then you can buy a donut and have 45 bucks left over. But their mind wouldn't think that way because they're not accustomed to people that think that way. And if you're not careful about who you spend time with, you're going to slip into whatever the mindset of who you're around. And that may not be what works best for you. Yeah, let's let's uh, there's a lot to dive into here. Obviously, uh, I mean, for people who don't know you, we'll give you a good intro, which comes before this after the fact, uh, if that makes sense to anybody listening right now. But um, you have the number one real estate uh, podcast on iTunes. You are huge into mindset and what makes people tick. Mm-hmm. Psychology has been something you've gravitated towards. Let's talk a bit about how you grew up and what shaped you and got you to where you are now. Oh, that's good stuff, man. So I, I grew up in Manteca, California, which is about an hour and a half east of San Francisco. It was the water slides. Yeah, man, water that's slides. Right. That's exactly I've right. Been they there. tore them down and build a bunch of houses. Real sad. <laughs> um, but it was kind of a commuter town for people that live in San Francisco or, or sorry, work in San Francisco. <clears throat> and my first love <clears throat> was basketball. Loved basketball. It was all that I wanted to do. And um, there was physical limitations with how far I could take that love that I had for basketball. I wasn't fast enough and jump high enough to get to, to higher levels. And then there was some just psychological experiences I had in just the high school level of having a new coach come in my senior year, not getting to play like I thought I was going to. It just felt like there was always these roadblocks. And it was immensely frustrating, just like a very difficult time in being told no, when you so badly want, you believe in yourself, you know, you can get to the next level, but there's things outside of your control that keep you from getting there. And I went through like a very difficult time trying to figure out, well, who am I if I'm not a basketball player all the way through college? But I took the principles that had made me a good basketball player and I applied them to wherever I was. So I would work in restaurants. I would be just the best waiter I could be, work as many tables as I can, as well as I can. I saved up all my money. I graduated from college with a psychology degree and about 90 grand in the bank. And I had my car paid off, my school paid for. I was working all the way through, right? So the timing worked out perfect for me because right when I graduated is when the economy tanked. So I had about one year after graduation. I graduated in 05. I worked at this a really nice restaurant until 2006. I got a job as a deputy sheriff. I saved money for two years. The economy completely fell apart. So luckily, when you're working as a police officer, you're pretty safe as far as your, your job's concerned, or so you would think. So I started buying rental properties because I had all this money that I'd saved up. And now the real estate has dumped. And I had no intention of being a real estate investor. I just knew well, I'm going to need a house someday. So I should buy one and rent it out until I'm ready. Well, I ended up getting laid off of the department I worked for because of budget cuts. And I went to a, a new department where I could work more overtime and I had more opportunity. It was really good. And I just kept saving money and buying houses, but I was never really intentionally trying to build this empire. It was just, it made sense to do. Why not do it? And eventually I got really good at doing that. So uh, I had quite a few rentals. California became too expensive to invest in when the market turned around. So I moved to Arizona. I started buying there. Unbeknownst to me, nobody else was really buying out of state. I didn't know you weren't supposed to do that. 
I just went and did it because it didn't make sense in California. That real estate became expensive. I moved to Florida. I started buying rentals there. And then I got interviewed on this Bigger Pockets podcast. So they asked me about like, you know, how are you doing this? And I talked about buying properties out of state, led to my first book deal with them. That book, Long Distance Real Estate Investing, did really well. And that sort of skirted the career that I'm into now of teaching other people how to invest. That's 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 awesome. There there is uh, a lot in the world of finance right now, particularly that is polarized between how you look at real estate. And some people say um, it's not an investment. You know, markets are are fragile, and we don't know when the next bubble's going to burst and all that shit. And then you know, you know as well as I do, I grew up in the Bay Area. I grew up in the Silicon Valley. There's guaranteed returns even after 2008 that your house will appreciate and you will make money. And especially if you buy one of these shitty old flat tops for 700,000, tear it down and build something up with your own money, you're going to make an, you're going to make a return there fairly quickly. Um, how do you model that in the face of, and, and first, I guess, talk about the psychology of why you can invest in real estate and make, make an impact. Well, real estate is unique in the way you can build wealth from it and that there's several different ways. And if you do it correctly, it's almost impossible to lose. Now I don't, there's a lot of gurus that will say the same thing and say, now spend $30,000 for my course and I'll teach you the case. It's much more simple than that. You're going to make the majority of your money, like you said, buying in a market that's going to appreciate a lot. The people that lost money between, say, like 2001 and 2008 or so, 2009, were buying purely for that purpose alone. We call it like speculation. They were just hoping that the house would go up in value. Very similar to buying a stock. I bought it at $20 a share. I hope it goes up to 30 If it goes down, there's nothing I can do. Well, real estate's unique in the sense that it will actually generate income for you while you own it. You're collecting rent. And if you make sure that the expenses associated with owning that house are less than the rent that you're collecting, you're actually in the black. You're making money every single month. We call that cash flow. So I look at it like, like you're, you're climbing this mountain. And, the, and as your property becomes worth more, you got these winds like pushing you up that mountain. It's really easy. Well, at certain points, the winds aren't going to be pushing up. They're going to be pushing down. But that cash flow acts like a belay. So if I, if I buy a house for 300 grand and it drops to 150, but it's making me money every month, that belay caught me. I can't fall. And I just mm. stay there until the market turns around and comes back up. The people who lose money are the speculators who don't make sure the property cash flows. They just buy it knowing they're going to lose a thousand bucks a month. But if they're going to sell it in a year, they're okay as long as it goes up. So what, what I teach people is you need to buy for property that will cash flow so you're safe. And then if it appreciates, that's just a bonus that you can make your money. And eventually it will. The markets are always going to turn around. If you look at what real estate's done over 30 years, it's incredible, especially where you're from, right? Yeah. Yeah. And even here in Austin, you know, they're building the second, right down the street from my mom in Sunnyvale, they have the new Apple building that just got finished. That was a billion dollars. They have plans for the second one to be right here in Austin, just a little bit north of us. And there's a huge tech boom here. Mm -hmm. And it reminds me of when I was growing up and just seeing the dot coms and seeing everything happen. And it was like, Every small town of the peninsula became something. Yep. EPA was a shithole, oh. an absolute shithole. Then Facebook comes in and it's like, oh, damn, everybody wants to move there. Fucking Mountain View was okay, like middle class at best. And then Mountain View has Google, you know, and then you look at all these places that are changed. Yahoo is in Sunnyvale, uh, right next to Cupertino with Apple. And like all these places blew up. And you see that now, like here in Austin, it's like, the reason there's so much traffic is because they didn't, there was no infrastructure for this many people moving here as fast as they yeah. have. And the last five years has completely changed. So like, I think, you know, if you're in a place like this, buying real estate is really a good idea because it's not, it's not going to go the opposite direction. Everyone's moving here. 
And if somehow it did go the opposite direction, if it's generating rent, who cares? People ask me that all the time. What are you going to do when the market crashes? And that house that was worth 250 goes down to 175 or 150. I'll say I'll, I'll celebrate because I could go buy a bunch of houses for 150 now. I don't have to spend 250. You only get hurt if you sell. And if you're generating income, you don't have to sell. So if you make sure your property's cash flow and you make sure you have enough money in reserves that you can weather a storm, you won't lose when it comes to real estate investing. But the gain when you do gain is so big. When you look at what you can do buying a house in Austin five years ago or what's going on. If you if you follow like the tech boom right now, you look at every city that's blowing up across the country, Seattle, Portland, Austin, San Francisco, uh, Madison, Wisconsin, Birmingham, Alabama, like every one of those cities is where tech companies are moving. They bring high wages with them. There's not enough inventory for all the jobs that are moving in. It pushes the prices up higher. And then people do a lot. They do really well with real estate. And if you feel like you're getting into a part of the market where you're, you're coming to a crash, then you sell that property and you move the money into somewhere safer, like in the Midwest, where prices just barely go up and they barely go down. And that's why I wrote that book, Long Distance Real Estate Investing, because if you get comfortable building systems to invest anywhere, you don't have the risks that are associated with, well, I'm buying a house in Austin and I hope it works out. Like I always tell people, you don't ever want to be hoping that anything goes well. You don't want to be on hopium. That's, that's like the worst <laughs> thing you could do, right? <laughs> you want to have a plan. Like I'm sure like, you know, going into a fight, if your plan is to walk into that, that fight and Superman, that guy on the very first try and you miss and you know you're going to lose that fight, that's a terrible plan. But you, there's openings where you can definitely do that. And you want to be able to take advantage of it when it comes. But the best fighters are the guy that kind of take what the defense gives them. And investing works exactly the same way. If you understand what you're doing, you understand what your options are. It's very, very, very low risk when it's real estate investing because the property generates income. Now, there's not like you're buying Bitcoin if you're buying stocks. There's no way that you're earning money other than it ha the the asset has to appreciate. It has to appreciate. Yeah. Well, one thing you talked about, you know, like if the housing market drops, that that allows you to buy houses for less. That's a lot of what this philosophy is now around, you know, buying stocks and, and indexing. You know, mm -hmm. if the market crashes and you have all large cap stocks and all mid cap stocks and you've got some international stocks and everything crashes, you're still investing. That's dollar cost averaging. Yep. That allows you to pick up extra stocks at the same price. If I'm going to put in a thousand each month, no matter what, I don't fucking worry about the highs and lows. That's exactly and right. You worry about earning income to be able to invest because you can control that. You cannot control what the market's going to do. And, and as you know, anytime you get caught up worrying about something you have no control over, it creates anxiety. It creates what we call analysis paralysis, where you just can't stop thinking about something so you don't take action. But if you focus on making more money when the market when the market drops, you're, you're grateful. Awesome. I get to go buy cheap stuff. When the market goes up, awesome. The assets that I had went up. And you get into a position where you can really overcome that fear. And that's where you have to understand what you're doing. Like the mindset that it takes to invest in real estate is not a complicated one. It's very simple. But you do have to overcome all the what ifs that go through your mind. And if you get good at doing that, well, man, you could do that at anything that you do and you're going to do it well. I love it. You're talking about a lot of psychology here that goes into this. Um, and you studied this in college. What made you gravitate towards that? Because in <laughs> from from judging a book by its cover, I wouldn't think that somebody who studies psychology and is very disciplined with money and, and the way that you were throughout school and a hard worker would then choose to become a cop. Right. Yeah. I uh, I was originally a business major in college and it just became boring, just very, very bad. And I went through like a very depressed state. And so getting up to go to school was just becoming a grind. And I wanted to drop out, but I didn't want to quit anything that I had started. And I knew that I really didn't need to. 
I had to pick a different major that would keep me interested in what I was doing. And because I was going through depression, I was very interested in like, what makes you depressed? Why are some people happy? So the why behind stuff was something I was always interested in. And at the time I was going through depression. So the why behind that was the answer would be in a psychology. So that was why I started studying that. I, I think, so I was very frustrated. Like I told you with my basketball career, not working out how I wanted I feel like there was, whether you believe in God or fate or whatever, that was not where I was supposed to go. It created an immense amount of frustration, which became fuel to propel me through the other things I did. So it was a blessing when I look back at the time, it felt horrible. Being a cop was something that I needed in my own life just to develop confidence that I didn't have. It was it was one of the times where I was forced to uh, face the parts of myself where I doubted myself, face the parts of myself where I was a little more timid. Um, I had to grow just because you get that survival thing that's going to kick in, right? Like, like people that are not necessarily aggressive, if you put them into an MMA situation, you either learn to find that part of yourself or you get the hell out of what you're doing. Cause it's like the worst thing you can do is to, is to be hesitant when you're in a situation like that. And to, a, it was a much smaller scale. Like it wasn't as intense as an MMA career, but you're put in situations all the time where like, if you hesitate, someone could die. You could die. Then. Yeah. That's more intense than MMA. You're not going to die in the cage. Like that may be the case. Yeah. You put your um, life on I the line. It's a whole different animal. You feel it much more in an MMA career than mm. it kind of runs in the background in a police career. I got you. Know? you. Yeah. Yeah. That's big. So becoming a cop, uh, did you always see that as a means to an end or did you see that more as like, this is something I'm going to do the rest of my life as you really gravitated towards uh, growth from it? No, I wanted to do that for my career. It was weird. I never had any desire to be a cop. I hit the bug and it became all I could think about. Like, I just remember one day sitting in the shower, just letting the water hit me and feeling this like fire in your soul that like, it will kill me, but I won't stop. I'd applied 11 different apartments before I got picked up. And each one of those was like a six month process that you're going through before you find out if you're going to get hired. I wanted it so bad. It was like, this was the path that all that frustration I talked about earlier was, was putting me towards. And I knew, looking back, I know I needed that. I needed that training. I needed the mentorship that you got from the the recruit, the uh, training officers in the academy, the people that trained you in the department, kind of like the father figure roles that you had in that environment. Um, I planned to do that forever. And when I got in there, I just want to learn everything I could. I want to be an instructor for everything. I wanted to learn everything that there was to learn. The culture kind of turned against us. That was the first thing where it just being a cop isn't what it was when you first started. And you could see you weren't going to win this battle, you know? And then I ended up developing an injury that just kept me from being able to be on my feet for more than 10, 15 minutes at a time. Mm. So I could see that door was closing. And it ended up being a blessing in disguise because to look at like law enforcement now, a lot of cops are just stuck in this thing where their skill set doesn't really transfer. They have no way to get into another career. The public has turned against them. Their department has turned against them. Uh, there's not a whole lot of, of pros and they're just becoming very bitter and cynical just by the nature of being stuck there. I was able to get out of it. And what I found is that after putting up with that law enforcement environment and trying to do a good job there, when I got into being a real estate agent or investor, it just seemed easy. It was like a bunch of weights got taken off of me and I could just run at full speed. Hell yeah. Well, we touched on your first book. You've written two other books. Is that correct? Yeah. The new book I just wrote is uh, the top selling book on Amazon for real estate right now. It's doing awesome. And then what's the title? It's called Buy, Rehab, Rent, Refinance, Repeat. So we call that the Burr strategy. It's an acronym. And that's all about buying like a fixer upper house, making it worth more. And once it's worth more than you than you paid for it, refinancing it to pull your money out. So instead of selling it as like a flip, you refinance it, keep it for yourself and put that money into your next deal. No shit. Okay. And then uh, 
through, I guess, through refinancing it, you would have to have it appraised, and then that would potentially increase property tax, which is more here, but not that much Yeah, that's more. a bigger thing in Texas than it is in a lot of other places. Yeah. So and a normal deal that I could buy is something I'd pick up for $60,000, just a tore-up house in the South somewhere. I spend 30000 to fix it up, so I'm all in for ninety. dollars It appraises at one twenty. dollars A bank will let me borrow 75% of what it appraises for, so I get back my ninety, dollars and then I go buy the next house. And it's all about not just dumping down payment and rehab money into a house. And then you got to go save it all up again and dump it in the next one. You're actually recycling that same capital and it forces you to buy really good deals. You can't buy a mediocre deal. You got to hunt for something good so you can get your money back out. But it's, I always tell people that uh, mastery is developed by repetition and you cannot get good at anything if you do it one time a year and real estate investing isn't any different. Well, if you're just saving up money and dumping it in a house, you're not going to do that very often unless you're super wealthy. Yeah. If you can recycle the same capital, though, you get really good at knowing how to estimate rehabs, which parts of town you want to buy in, developing connections and relationships with the brokers that have the most deals. That's how you become a black belt is you practice the same thing over and over and over. And the burst strategy is kind of the only way that you can do that with unless you're super wealthy with the same mm. money. Yeah, if you, obviously, if you have a ton of cheese, you don't have to worry about getting your money right. back out, that kind of thing. Um, you mentioned a couple of figures that are blowing my mind. It makes sense to me that there are certain parts of the world where a house might only cost 60 grand and 30 to fix up. The numbers I'm thinking of are like, you know, like I mentioned in NorCal, you tear down a $700,000 house that's an old shithole built mm-hmm. in the 50s, and then it costs you 200 to 300 grand to, to make a new one. Um, is that Does that change from place to place, like how much it's going to cost to actually rebuild a house? The rehab will absolutely change. Like $30,000 in North Florida will get me what sixty dollars to $70,000 will get me in the Bay Area. So the, okay. the rehab is different. The other thing you have to factor in is we have what's called the 1% rule, which is this, this uh, metric that if a house will rent for 1% every month of what you paid for it, it will probably cash flow positively. So you'll make money every month. If it's less than 1%, you get to where it's, it's harder to do that. So if you were to do what we described in the South Bay and spend 700 grand on a house and 200 grand on a rehab, it'd have to rent for somewhere between seven to $9,000 a month before you could cash flow. And mm. that's not going to happen because if you have $9,000 a month down there, you're just going to go buy a house. Yeah. So there's certain, so you can only flip that house to make money. There's certain parts of the country where hitting the 1% rule is much easier. So what, that's what I do is I'm like, all right, I'm not going to try to force this round peg into a square hole trying to make this work in my market. I'm going to go to the parts of the country where it makes sense to buy rentals and buy rentals, and I'm going to flip houses in the parts of the country where it makes sense to do it. And then it just becomes putting a system together of having the people in place that you need to like do the stuff for yourself. And it's it's like most things in life. It is not easy, but it's not complicated. It's a pretty simple thing, but you got to put the work into finding the right people, learning how to read people who, who, who you can trust, and then building systems to get that work done. You talk about reading people. I mean, I think uh, the, obviously the psychology background plays a big deal into that. Um, do you, with your real estate business now in NorCal, are you actually doing real estate like typical, like a realtor would do with people yeah. or are you just, okay. Yeah, so, you're so not I sell houses and help buyers and sellers in the Bay Area and Sacramento. And then I take that money and I invest it into other parts of the country. Shit. So you're doing all forms of real yes. estate. Yeah. I'm very big into like what I call like a, a synergistic approach to what you're doing. So if you're, if you're understanding how to invest in real estate, how to build wealth for people, you're different than other realtors and that you're just a happy person with a nice smile and you can kiss babies, right? They're coming to you because this is the guy that can help make me money in real estate. Well, if you do that right, more people should be coming to you. So you should make more money. So you have more that you can go buy. 
which gets you better at building wealth so that you can help other people. And those two things are actually helping each other. And if you look at what successful people who have built a successful brand or a big business do, I can always point to where there was a synergy between one thing they did well in life and how they branched out from there. Mm, right. Yeah, there's a starting place. That's that exactly them. right. And, and, the, and the business people who do the best naturally see that. Well, I've got a gym. This is a great gym. I need to start uh, selling supplements because people will trust me when they know me from this gym and I need to start doing coaching. And then how can I branch off where it's not starting a completely new business you know nothing about? You're not starting a Build-A-Bear in the mall somewhere that you don't understand. It's just, uh, it's very close to what you're already doing and you kind of branch out. And then you've created a whole ecosystem that can generate revenue for you based on something that you're the expert in, right? None of us want to invest with a person who's doing something that they don't understand anything about. Yeah, I spent 20 years in this field, but I've just got my feet wet here. Yeah, so, but yeah. uh, I was great in the other thing. So, <laughs> I always tell people like Michael Jordan, best basketball player that ever played, was not a great executive. He still to this day is not known as a very good owner. It's a completely different skill set between being a competitive athlete and being a business person. And so, when you're considering who to partner with, you can't assume that because they were good at one thing that they'll necessarily be good at the next. You really have to see that their mind can make the connection between the two and the skills they had in this area will actually work in the new area also. I love it. Um shit, yeah, it's reminding me of of honest growth, you know, like we started in Aubrey's garage with just Alpha Brain. And from there, created more supplements and then got a small building. And then from there, it grew and it grew. And then kettlebells, maces, fitness equipment, now a lifestyle brand with, we got a, our our dude, Sean Heisen, was uh, one of the main writers for Men's Health. He's writing for us now. And we just pump out content, you know, help people change their lives. And I think that it's funny how, like, it's like you said, it wasn't a huge leap from mm -hmm. any one particular point, but it all stemmed from one plant-based nootropic. That was it. And there's a, you could find a pattern in everything you did where there's a, there's a similarity in all of it that it wasn't a huge jump. In fact, have you ever heard of The One Thing by Gary Keller and Jay Papazan? It's a business book. No. It's, it's basically about the whole premise of the book is what's the one thing that you could do right now that would make everything else either easier or unnecessary. When you're faced with a ton of options, how you figure out where you should start. And in chapter two of that book, they describe what's called geometric progression. And it's this idea that a domino can knock down another domino that's one and a half times bigger than itself. So one inch domino can knock down a two and a half inch domino and so forth. And by the 17th domino, you can knock down something the size of the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And I believe by the 36th domino, you can knock down something the size of Mount Everest, right? Yeah. And there's several lessons when I look back at my, my success and how I've moved forward since I left being a cop really quickly, where I can recognize that I was naturally taking advantage of this concept of knocking down dominoes that I'm sure on it did the very same thing. A lot of the times when we have something that we do well, that's like knocking over a domino, you don't look to see what other domino it could knock down to give you the next shot. You just congratulate yourself on what you did good and then work on pushing over the next time. That's a lot of work. When you line dominoes up. So for me, you know, I, I was buying these rental properties and I got interviewed on the Bigger Pockets podcast. Well, I did a good job and they said, you did a great job. And I said, okay, can I start writing blog articles for your website? That was the next domino I knocked down. I did the very best I could at writing articles. I would talk to the, the editor and say, what are the ones that people click on the most? How long should they be? What's a good example? And I became the top blog writer on that site. And then they came to me and said, man, you write really well. Do you want to write a book? That was another domino. That book now opens up doors for you. And you get to pick which of those doors you want to go through. Where's all your dominoes lined up? And as long as you're not knocking down the same size domino over and over, which is something people get sucked into, they'd sell the same house, right? Same, same size yeah. house. You look for what doors will this open up for me? 
you will your growth will be like ge geometrically progressive. It will it will sky high up as opposed to just a linear type growth. And when you look at successful people, I can always point out this is what they did. Like if we sat down and pointed out how on it started to where it is now, I could find the dominoes you guys knocked over. And when people are frustrated that they're not having the success they want, or they look at someone else and you get, a, oh, it must be nice to be that guy. You're just not like lining up the dominoes to know where you want to go. Yeah. Tony Robbins talks about that. When we see people that we are impressed with or that we want to emulate, we're looking at a finished product. We're not, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. Everyone has their own struggles. Everyone has their own accomplishments. Even with you start, like I think, uh, one of the Koch brothers was recently on the Tim Ferriss podcast and he talked about how his dad, you know, they started with 21 million or something like that, but he's brought that to billions. You know what I'm saying? So it's, yeah, he had a good starting place, but he didn't just take that and milk it. He brought it to a whole different level. And I think like, you know, it doesn't matter if you start with nothing. There are countless stories of people who started with nothing and turned themselves into something. Dude, just living in America, you're the equivalent of starting with $20 million compared to everybody else in the world right? Like we have a very strong victim mentality in this country that's kind of taking over. But if you compare us to anywhere else that you are, there's nobody here that cares enough about you to stop you from trying to get where you want to go at all. You, you, you're born in some other countries and literally just someone sees you doing well and they're going to use, pull the strings that they need to have people in power to stop you from being able to build what you're building. Or there's no one that has money to buy your product right? Like you're in Bolivia right now. It's going to be very tough to sell supplements because they're always trying to figure out what are they going to eat today? Yeah. You know, you come to America with the way that we have social media set up, like you can, you can do anything you want if you do it well. You're that guy with 20 million. And so when I hear people criticize like a Coke brother, well, yeah, you had 20 million. Like no, that's you if you're in America right now. You have that same advantage over everybody else. You touched on uh, the victim mentality. I want to dive deep into that. We were, we were touching on a little bit with... Um, you know, and again, I don't want to paint with a broad, broad stroke, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> the, the liberal West coast where I was born and raised, but, um, and I'm in a liberal town now, but I, I would, I would say, um, somewhere in the middle, maybe leaning left on certain things, leaning right on certain things, but like this, this concept of the victim mentality and, you know, where you have social justice warriors coming out and everyone's posturing, there's a term that, uh, Jordan Peterson uses a lot. I'm trying to, trying to remember it, but, um, God, what is it? It's like, it's not gesturing. It's, uh, fuck. It's on the tip of my tongue. I'll see if it comes to me, but point, point being, um, it becomes this pissing contest of who's mm. had it worse. Yep. And, and, and what is the latest thing? And, you know, I mean, I remember the first, some of the first spiritual books I read with Dr. Wayne Dyer talking about like how, if you've been, even Eckhart Tolle talks about this, if you've been injured or the person who needed to be taken care of, you will hold on to your sickness or your illness to remain the person who needs to be taken care of. And this is not to say that anyone who has a disability or has sure. a disease is remaining that way on purpose, but it is to say that that is a possibility and that quite a few people do that because they get accustomed to being the one who's being taken care of, the one who's being looked after, the one who draws the attention from everyone around them. And uh, on a lesser scale, People do this all the time. We see it with the Me Too movement. We see it with, um, you know, shit that happens to you in the workplace. Mm -hmm. We see it in all, and it's not to say that that things don't happen and that, you know, Weinstein isn't groping people sure. or doing stupid shit. Like, for sure, this is mm -hmm. happening. And it doesn't need to be, I'm not trying to downplay that, but I'm talking about is the mentality 
that I was wronged and I will find ways to portray that to people that allow them to look at me differently and hopefully think of me in that way, like, oh no, you poor thing, how can I help? Mm-hmm. Talk about that. What, what's going on here? And you're in the Bay Area still, so yeah, you got a lot of lot of sticky stuff with politics there too. Well, I think it's hard. First off, if you if you grew up in that culture, you're around it a lot. Just what us mentioning this will feel offensive just right off the bat, and and you really got to fight through that initial emotion of this is offensive to me or I don't like it to understand the perspective the other person has. Like I'm totally willing to hear the people who would make the argument that they're a victim. I'm not just going to shut down and not hear it at all. But the reason that we are that way is because it works, right? When you're when you're a victim of a crime and the suspect is convicted of it, they have to pay reparations, right? They often say, or restitution, you owe this much money to this person because of what you did. So we we just inherently understand that being a victim comes with a paycheck in a lot of ways. And, and there's nothing wrong with that when it's in a healthy way. When, when somebody is like beat up or something, having sympathy for them is a normal response. Or if they're wrongfully fired or something, like you're paying them through sympathy and compassion and stuff like that. The problem becomes when you recognize that there's a pattern in human behavior that does that and you start trying to apply it in unhealthy ways. And it's it's really just that it's bad for you to get your own needs met that way. You end up losing confidence in yourself as a person when you're trying to convince everybody that you were wronged rather than finding the parts of yourself that could overcome that obstacle with your own skills. And that's what's really sad to me is that that, that evolution of growth, which makes you just, you get addicted to that when you're on it and you're always looking at how can I get to the next level? These people are missing that because we keep feeding them like we're, we're they're a house cat we just keep bringing them tuna oh it's so sad that you had this thing happen to you here have this where like learning that you have the power to hunt is a good feeling you know like that it's going to make you a better husband a, a better brother a, a better friend a better employer you're going to be a happier person people are going to gravitate to you when you're constantly looking for how to overcome an obstacle and you have that confidence we all know who it is like you're when you're in the presence of those kind of people you are drawn to them when you're in the presence of a victim, there's like a lack of trust. And I'm definitely not, I don't respect that person nearly as much. We, I obviously experience this a lot with law enforcement because they become the, the target of, of people that claim that they're, they're victims. I don't think you can really love somebody and at the same time encourage their victim mentality, right? Like if I was overweight, and I was constantly saying, well, it's not my fault because there's fast food places everywhere and life's busy and my boss doesn't let me cook at the job. So I have to eat fast food. You could sympathize with me, but that would be mean you don't really care about me or respect me at all. If you were my real friend, you'd be like, yeah, that's horseshit, right? There's ways you can overcome this. And they're not that, that complicated. There's food prep. There's all kinds of stuff. That's what you would actually say if you did love me. And I think that's what bothers me the most about the the victim mentality is that when it's tolerated by others, what they're saying is, I don't have a lot of respect for you. And I don't really think you're capable of much. So I'm just going to bring you your tuna like a pathetic house cat that you are, right? It's actually very demeaning (laughs) when, when we encourage it. But it's so just widespread. It's not even questioned anymore, right? And like you mentioned, it creates a a battle of who's the bigger victim, who can shout louder than the next person about where they are. And that only hurts the people that think that way. Yeah, this reminds me of uh, my buddy, Levent Niazi, who also grew up with with Blake Edwards out in NorCal, like long time, known these guys since I was 12 years old. And Blake, of course, worked for you. Uh, Levent, his, one of his favorite guilty pleasures is watching my 600-pound life. And so I put it on. I used to work at a strip club as a bouncer bartender. So I threw it on the TV screens to get people out. One night when I was closing the bar... And I'm watching my 600-pound life for the first time. And it was crazy how in any situation, the person who was 
abs- they were obese at 400 pounds. At 500, like morbidly obese. At 600, they're holding on by threads, yeah. right? They always had an enabler. Mm-hmm. It could have been a daughter with a dad who was like, well, point. my little girl, just she's just got a big appetite. And he's baking you know, 24 fucking Pillsbury rolls and he's got sausage and gravy to go with yeah, it. Yeah, because when you get to 600 pounds, you can't even go get your own food. You can't. Somebody has to be enabling Somebody's it. enabling it, right? And you think about that with victims, whoever is the person that feeds the house cat, they're enabling that to go on because they're not saying, I believe in you and you mm-hmm. can change this and You're you can shift your mind. You're better than this. They're saying, oh, I'm sorry that happened to you and I'm sorry you can't change from it. Right. There's something I've said before on this podcast that there's 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 no doubt there are fucking victims in the world. There is no doubt. And then my wife was just on the podcast. She talked about a lot of heavy shit that happened in her childhood from her first from her biological dad committing suicide when she was one to having a leader in the church who was her stepdad molester for for years. Right. Like hard shit. You stop being a victim the moment the act is done, mm. the moment it's over with. You're hit by a drunk driver while you're driving. You may have two years of recovery to get back to be able to walk. But the second that accident's over, you're no longer a victim, right? If you take that mindset going forward, you can do anything. Because like you said, what's the one thing? It reminds me of Lou Holtz in this uh, this kind of rah-rah book that he wrote. He's the old football coach from Notre Dame football. Mm-hmm. He has an acronym for WIN. And win stands for what's important now. Mm. That's the only thing you need to fucking think about. If what's important now is teaching my fucking toes how to work and my feet how to work so I can walk again, that's what's the most important thing. It's not living in the past. We just had Corey Allen on this morning who wrote uh, Now is the Way. He's an amazing guy. His podcast is called The Astral Hustle. Great guy. But I think in any of these things, whether they come from a spiritual tradition or just a a brass tacks, get shit done mentality, it always starts with being present. It has to. Because if you dwell on the past, good or bad, you know, if you're if you're a guy who, who relives the glory days constantly and mm-hmm. thinks that his best days are over with, that's bad. If you're somebody who relives the past of your victim mentality, that's bad. You have to find a way to shift into the present moment. All right, Joe, we just heard me talking a little bit about presence. Obviously, that's nothing new to my listeners or to the listeners of the Aubrey Marcus podcast or anybody else who's in this space. We also mentioned my man, Corey Allen, who has his new book, Now is the Way. All things important getting into that present moment. But really quick, I want to talk to you about an awesome company called Indochino. They were founded on the belief that you don't need to spend a fortune on a custom wardrobe. I mean, I've always been under the belief that if I look good and I feel good, I'll perform good. I thought this way when I played football at Arizona State. Obviously, getting ready in the locker room while I was fighting professionally, all these things matter, including how I show up to work and especially for big-time events where I really want to have fun and let loose with my friends. These guys make it really affordable to get awesome custom-made clothing, and you don't even need to go anywhere. You can take your measurements at home and do it all online, or you can go to one of their many indoor studios in an Indochino. So I went out to the domain here in Austin. They've got them in several different locations you can look up online. But I went in and I had an amazing lady who knew exactly what I was looking for. These guys have amazing fabrics like wool. They have different colors from plaid to regular colors to shit that pops like purple velvet. I mean, they've got all sorts of stuff. If you've got a little swag and you want to show off, it fits amazing and you get it delivered right to your door. The best part is they're affordable. Almost all of their custom clothing is under 400 bucks. 
The process is simple. You choose your fabric, pick your customizations, and submit your measurements. Your package will be delivered straight to your door in two weeks, and you can get measured and design your suit at your nearest Indochino showroom or do it all yourself online at Indochino.com. Start your style upgrade now with $30 off your total purchase of $3.99 or more at Indochino.com when entering Kyle at checkout. Plus, shipping is free. That's Indochino.com, promo code Kyle, for $30 off your total purchase of $3.99 or more. It's an incredible deal for made-to-measure clothing. You really have no excuse anymore to wear clothing that doesn't fit. You can also use code word Kyle in the showroom. So get your ass in one of these places and level up your clothing. Thanks for listening to me and back to the show. Well, I think there's a difference between being a victim just objectively and having a victim mentality. And that's what Mm. you're pointing out is, yeah, you got hit by a drunk driver. That was not fair to you. You are technically a victim, right? And there should be an amount of sympathy and support that comes with that. You getting on your feet. But if you adopt a victim mentality, why rehab? Why try to walk again? right? No, the world now owes me. Bring Throw in me, the towel. There yep. you go. Throw in the towel. Bring me what I need. And don't question that I'm doing this because I'm a victim. And, and how do you criticize the victim? And it becomes like a drug that is very addictive, that it's easier than having to learn to walk again, to give yourself the excuse that you don't have to. But in making that decision, you are also saying, I am weak. I am powerless. I am not confident. I am not capable of very much. And you need to have a lower standard for me. And I think that's what drives me nuts because the people that we love we increase what we expect from them, right? The coach expects more out of the most talented player. The good parent expects more out of their kids. When you love somebody, you want to see them hit their potential and you're pushing them. And being a victim is literally makes it impossible to hit your potential. You're not even trying to hit it. You're trying to bring everyone else down so that you don't have to raise yourself up. And if you're someone who's just not happy in life, like maybe related to not having confidence, Your mindset, I can almost guarantee you, is centered around ways that you're a victim, whether those are subconscious thoughts or not, and a belief that you cannot change where you are. And when you find people that have changed where they are, it's usually not anything incredibly, they're not all rocket scientists that do it. I mean, I'm sure you hear stories all the time of people that, like you said, came from nothing. In a lot of ways, coming from nothing is an advantage over other people. Because like I described, that frustration that I had from my career not working out is literally the fuel that propelled me to have success in other things. When I look at other realtors that aren't doing as good as me, even though they maybe have a skill set better, I mean, I'm a cop. I'm not really the best of people. I don't love to go to happy hour and socialize. But I'm selling more than all of them because I'm driven more. That's That's a blessing that came from being frustrated and being a victim of what happened when I was playing basketball in high school. And everyone's got something that they can pull on where it said, this wasn't fair to me. Well, the successful people take that and say, I'm going to let that drive me to work twice as hard as the next guy. And the unsuccessful people take that and say, well, that's my excuse why I don't have to work hard at all. Yeah, that, that resonates highly with me. You know, the, the person who starts with nothing uh, potentially has the greater advantage. And I, I used to recognize that in football. And my football career ended very similar to your basketball career. I, did, I sat the bench my last two years at ASU, uh, really wanted to play, felt like I could play. And, you know, not even start. The starters were great, but but just have playing time. And I really just sat the bench. I was a fucking glorified cheerleader. I was a swole cheerleader. Yeah. And uh, but thinking about that, you know, there's. Oh, shit. Just lost my train. Of well, thought. how much did that propel you into your MMA career? That yeah, so that's what I was getting get at. That. The guys. Thank you for drawing me back there. The guys who went on to play pro 
the ones that played a year and got bounced were the most talented players in college. They were the best of the best. They would always pull up with a hamstring yeah, pull yeah. in when we were running sprints at the end uh -huh. of practice in two a days. They'd be like, oh, my hamstring. And they wouldn't push themselves because they were the most fucking gifted. And that's not to say that the most gifted people are quitters and they don't go for it. But it's easier but to be one. It is because yeah. you're that talented. And then you see the best guys in the, I mean, a lot of the guys that I played with who lasted a long time in the NFL, they were the guys who they were good and they were gifted, but they weren't the most gifted. Like a Jerry and Rice. And they, they had to bust their ass just like Jerry Rice, right? And you look at the best players in the NFL, they have it all. They have the yeah. gifts and the work ethic. And there's no doubt about that. So there, there are there are examples of that. It's not to say that everyone who has gifts uh, doesn't do shit with their life. There are mm -hmm. plenty of people who do. Look at LeBron James. Yeah, but um, that to me definitely uh, is something that strikes a chord because we oftentimes don't think about what our gifts are, you know. And that's something that Aubrey has talked about, and and uh, Anahata, who is a great teacher, she's coming back on the podcast. You know, she has this conscious relationships workshop where you think about who your greatest teacher was. And oftentimes it's not somebody you met in school or, or had as a mentor. It's oftentimes it's a parent or an older sibling. And more likely than not, they will teach you just as much or possibly more things that you did not want to do in life than you do want to do in life. And it's not to say that everyone has it rough growing up, but mm -hmm. the point is that your greatest teacher is not just the person who taught you all the good shit. It's the yeah. person who taught you the most, period. And oftentimes, the things that they teach you not to do, those are the gifts. That's amazing. Yeah, and you miss that entire thing if you're wallowing in your own self-pity over being a victim. You won't see how that the things that you are using for victimhood were the gifts that were given to you if it don't be this way. Work harder than the next guy because things are extra hard for you, right? If you spend your whole life with the world against you, just theoretically speaking, imagine the muscle you got to build to be able to do that. And then when you get your opportunity, you're going to be in 10 times the shape of the guy who's a super talented one that had it easy. If you spend your whole time saying, well, I'm not as talented as him, so why try, right? You're just, you're never going to go anywhere. There's like, you gave a perfect example the Jerry Rice's that had to work twice as hard as everyone else to keep up with them, built up a muscle that when they got into the NFL and maybe then like they, you know, they hit their athletic peak and they have that work ethic, those were the, the, the rock stars. Those are the superstars. And I'm sure in MMA, is very, very similar for what you saw, is the best fighter was not always the most talented when he had the strongest mindset. And I think what I love about non-sports, because I've been a huge sports fan my whole life, but there are physical limitations to what you're doing. John Jones is going to have an advantage over other guys because he's a physical specimen. But you get in the world of business or real estate investing or being a real estate agent, your athletic ability in that world is your mindset. And there's nothing that stops you from having the best mindset other than your own self. There is no limitation that is put on you other than what you believe your limit could be. And that's why I feel like I'm doing so well is there was this frustration that was built from a physical limitation that I had. I just couldn't overcome. But I get into this world and there's nothing to stop me. As much as you want, there's opportunity everywhere. If you want to be the best at what you do, there's going to be a ton of people that are drawn to you, especially because most people in the world aren't really doing shit. If we're honest, they're not trying very hard at anything. Most people are doing the bare minimum just to not get fired. And that's it. And if you're the guy who has a job you don't love, but you come give an extra 20% over everyone else, you stand out right away. Very few circumstances are like, professional sports where everyone's given everything they got to make that team, right? That's a very difficult environment to succeed in. Your average nine to five job, man, guys are, they're coming in and they're like loafing it every day. And if you go in there and bust your butt, there's some manager who'd be like your coach who's going to see that and want to give you opportunity. 
being a victim, you're never going to think that way. Victims think like, well, when they pay me more, then I'll try harder. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Cause everything's owed to them. Yep. Uh, well, the, I do remember what I wanted to bring up. It was, it's a term called virtue signaling. Yeah. And we hear this. He does get, talk about that a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's, it's funny because, you know, when you hear it, you're like, oh yeah, I, it's, it's rare that I meet somebody who will virtue signal in per in person. And maybe that's because of the people that I hang around with, but I see it all the fucking time online, right? Where somebody will stand out, you know, the, the, the victim writes, you know, uh, this happened to me and, uh, woe is me on the fucking, you know, 10,000 word Facebook post. And the guy comes back to say, I can't believe that happened to you. That should never happen to women. Oh, so, so, so bad. And, and I'm going to signal this virtue of women's rights or, or, you know, my courage or my empathy towards you. And, yeah. you know, and it's just a, that too becomes the pissing contest uh -huh. of who's more virtuous. And what motivates that person, in your opinion, that's going to say, oh, I'm so sorry for you? Well, I mean, Fred Rogan talks about this, like the guy who comes to bat for the woman online and says, yeah, all men are pigs, these chauvinist assholes. That's the dude who's using that as an angle to get, to get laid. That's exactly, that's I was it. thinking that's, that's where you go. That's fucking angle. That's, yeah. there, there's, there, it's, whether he understands it consciously or not, on a subconscious level, he's making that move to try to get in with that woman. He's telling her what she wants to hear, yep. right? And you should, that's one of the biggest things to be aware of in the world completely is to people that tell you what you want to hear. I mean, if you had a coach that told you, oh, you're going to kill this guy. You don't even need to train, dude. You're so much better than him. Is he putting you in a position to succeed at all? It's no. actually like he's literally harming you by saying There's that. There's been fights where guys are losing each round and the coach, you can hear the coaches in between this. rounds. is like, oh, you thought... For sure you won that round. And it's like, wait a minute. You can encourage him all you want, but don't tell don't him he won a round that he didn't when yes. you clearly lost the round. Yeah, like, you can't that, say that. See, if I heard that, I would think that coach is not secure in his position as that guy's trainer. And he's trying to be likable to overcome the fact maybe he's not a great trainer, right? That's why he's relying on um, telling someone what they want to hear as opposed to I'm just the best effing coach that there is. And that's why you're going to train with me. It's the same with, with the people that are encouraging. Now there are cases, obviously, like we said, I don't want to sound like every woman that says she was a victim of something wasn't okay. But the ones that are purposely looking for sympathy when that is not going to help them in that situation, right? You don't need to tell the whole world what happened on Facebook. You're obviously looking for sympathy. And what will happen is the guy will come in and do exactly what you said. And then the girl will complain, well, all guys only want one thing when he gets close enough to make his shot, right? And she creates this self-fulfilling prophecy of all guys are pigs. Now she can complain about that guy that started with his virtue signaling to try to shoot his shot. He's another example of how all men are pigs. And then she can post about that. And the next guy will come in and say it. And their whole world just becomes this like confirmation bias of why they're a victim. You can't get out of that cycle. And I think it's not just women. This is happening with everyone. When you get into that mindset, it becomes this disease that is so hard to break out of it. I love Jocko Willink's book, Extreme Ownership. I mean, I, I want to have Jocko on our podcast. I'd love to be on his. That to me is the medicine that society needs to break out of this. When you look to ways to be a victim, I promise you, you will find them. There's mm -hmm. ways things are not fair for you. People look at you and say, he's in a privileged position. I guarantee you could show things that are the world stacked against you, and it's not as easy for you. If you're looking for that, you're absolutely going to find it. And I love that you had the courage to bring up when the guys come in and they tell you what they're saying, that's not your friend. That's not someone who loves you, who wants what's best for you. That's someone who wants to take advantage of you, and he's learned that he can go in through this back door where you won't recognize that he's actually trying to prey on you. It's big time. It's happening all, all over the internet.
Yeah, it's uh, it's um, it's crazy. You know, obviously you're you're old enough to have seen the whole thing shift to where it is now, from not having internet, not having cell phones, all yeah. that, and and obviously there's there's pros and cons to all this stuff. But um, I guess I guess what I want to know is like you you had a very disciplined mind and having the fire lit, uh, having the fire lit with what happened in basketball and wanting to do something and wanting to funnel that energy towards something allowed you to grow into what you do now. For people who are stuck in a rut, whether that is through physical injury or mental injury, you could call it from, from having a mentality that's something that we're talking about here. Um, what are the steps to find that fire inside and start to be uh, of service to yourself and of service to others? That's a really good question. Before basketball, I know that that fire was being built because I had a really rough relationship with my dad. He was just a guy you couldn't ever make happy. He was a very hard man, didn't show much affection. If he was ever proud of me, I never knew it. And I knew as a kid, that was like all that mattered to me. When my dad passed away, I kind of lost the will to live because I felt like it's too late. Like I missed my chance to make him proud and it's too late now, you know? Uh, so that was, it was a difficult time. But what was happening during that was that desire, that approval that I was looking for was building up inside me. And that could have either been the anchor that pulled me down or it could have been the fuel that shot me forward, depending on how I responded to it. What was lacking, depending on what direction I took, was confidence. So I had enough confidence built from the sports that I'd played and success that I'd had. And I got decent grades uh, to not completely quit and maybe go like the email path where I got into, you know, like <laughs> constantly complaining about everything and listening to Smashing Pumpkins and doing heroin, uh, but not enough that I could just go take life by the balls and do whatever I wanted. Like it was it was very in the middle. And what happened is I had to make a decision that I, I'm not happy where I'm at, but you got to believe you could be. And it was it was very, very simple. As I was a super skinny dude. I hated, hated, hated how skinny I was. And I started lifting weights. It took me about five years of lifting weights to build up any kind of a base. But I saw if you just keep doing it, you will get better at it, right? Like your body has to respond to that tension that you're putting underneath it. And you won't respond the same way as everybody else, but it will improve. And I recognize that was very similar to my basketball career. I got better because I just kept working at this thing. And I, I basically built my confidence and my ability to slowly build something as opposed to it needs to happen right away. So for those people like you asked that are trying to figure out how do I get out of the spot I'm in, you need to focus on crushing it at what you're doing. And I don't care if it's something that you think is stupid. If you work at 7-Eleven and you run the register, be engaged in what you do. Look for ways to improve the sales of the company. Interact with the people that come in. Try to sell them on something else. Learn how the guy who owns that place takes stock and what his worst job is and start doing that for him. And what will happen is you may never make any more money doing that. He may be a cheapskate, but you will develop a skill that will allow you to go manage somebody else's 7-Eleven. And then you'll save up enough money that you can buy your own 7-Eleven. And then you can systemize what you did and look for the next you. And that's an example of the guy that works at the 7-Eleven. If you wait for life to hand you what you're looking for before you give your best, you're going to be waiting forever. Everybody can start lifting that weight or building that muscle with where they are at. And it really doesn't matter. You could be the towel guy at a gym that like that wipes the sweat off the floor, but you're hanging around really, really talented coaches and you're learning what they say. And you could develop from being around those people into a very good coach yourself, which you could then figure out a way to turn into a business where you give online training manuals or however, however that works. 
if you have a helpless mentality, it's never going to happen. But really in America, there's no one holding you back. You got to start with something small, find success there, and then look for the next domino to knock over. Where could I apply what I did right here and have the same result with something that's a little bit bigger? And now what doors does that open for me? And how do I go through that next door? And I really believe that there's very few people in at least this country that can't do that. A severe mental handicap, something like that, those people have limitations. But able-bodied people like those kids you were talking about, the standing outside of voodoo donuts, right? There's nothing that would stop those guys from owning a voodoo donuts if they took that journey. And you have to start with recognizing if you're not taking the step, where does it come from? I knew it was my relationship with my dad. There's a book I read called Wild at Heart by John Eldridge, really good book that talks about, you know, like the heart of a man and how you can really only learn masculinity from another man. It's not mm. something that just is inherently inside of you. It has to be passed on from man to man. And recognizing, well, I need some mentors. Who do I want my mentor to be? And looking around and seeing who are the people I really look up to and respect. And now, I mean, you can listen to you on YouTube and you can see like, that's a mentor. They don't have to ever meet you to understand how you think and how you do stuff. <clears throat> and then starting with where you're at. That's the other thing is don't wait for your big break to try. If you're not crushing it now, when you get the opportunity, you're not going to be in shape to do it, right? Like you're training all off season. You're not waiting until the season starts and trying to start then because you're behind. Damn, that was gold. Thanks, man. <laughs> Thank you, brother. Um, shit. What's something that you found that just frustrates the crap out of you about people that are around you where you see they have more potential than what they're acting on? Well, I mean, I think I think generally it, it is it does go back into the funnel that all these things entail. And in even the social justice warrior, the person that virtue signals, um, they too are trying to portray themselves as something they are not. Mm. They too are trying to show the world a picture of what they think the world wants to see them as, right? As opposed to starting to really find out who they are, what makes them tick, doing the work. And what I mean by that is having tools like meditation, breath work, anything that can shift them from their normal state of being, including psychedelics and float tanks, to be able to drop in and sort their own shit mm -hmm. so they can see uh, and no longer operate on autopilot, but to come to a place of stillness where they can see like, this is why I feel anxious. This is why I get nervous around women. This is why um, I talk down about myself when I interview for a big job, right? If you can, you can get still enough, you can begin to allow these things to come up to the surface. Mm -hmm. And as they do so, you can figure out what's going on inside. And I think when I see people that are stuck, if they're, if they're just stuck for the time being, but I see in them um, a greater potential than they have, I'm usually not bothered by that because I can understand that everyone walks their own path. Everyone has the opportunity to learn their lessons at their own pace, right? And it, and it takes, like anything, even in fucking fitness. And I used to train people when I fought in the UFC. The people who, who got the best results wanted it for themselves. The people who didn't get results were told to lose weight from their doctor or their spouse, right? And it was like, oh, I got to lose this weight because mm -hmm. my wife wants me to, to, take, to lose a few. Or the doctor says, if I don't lose 20 pounds, I'll die in a year. Whatever the case is, like you, you have to want it for yourself. And if you do, those are the people that will ask questions. Those are the people that will say, hey, how can you help me in this area? And they're usually the people that will want to learn for themselves. And I think that is the differentiator between <clears throat> if you're really going to do the work or not. I always tell people like, I have a huge <clears throat> library at my house. I never give a book out because if I give you the book, you're not going to fucking read it and I'll mm -hmm. never see it again. Buy the goddamn book. It costs 15 bucks of your own money. But when you buy it, 
the odds of you reading that are much higher. Right. Right. So it it goes beyond uh, wanting to know the information. Like if I ask you, and I really want to know about real estate, if I ask you for answers about investing in real estate and how I go about that, if I truly want to learn, I need to go deeper than that and buy a book. I need to go deeper than that and read and become a student of the thing that I that I wish to embody. It's not enough for me to take your advice and start fucking flipping houses and yeah. making money on rent, right? And that, that goes for anything in life. I can't say... I want to be in shape, so I'm just going to follow Primal Soldier online and, and I'll just do his kettlebell workouts from his Instagram. Like, no, buy one of his courses. Come to on it. Fucking take the kettlebell cert. Whatever the case is, there's a way where you can go dip your feet in the shallow end and there's a way where you can go head first into the deep end. And I think when I see in people the willingness to go into the deep end, I know they're ready. And when I see people who want to dip their feet in the shallow end, that's okay. Maybe they'll warm up to it and they want to get in the deep end later. But I don't let that affect me obviously, because there's enough of that in the world. And if I was affected mm -hmm. by every negative person, I'd be a miserable fuck myself. Do you think that the people that are not ready to go in the deep end are often just maybe it's insecurity driven? They don't want to ask those tough questions because they're afraid of what's going to come up and they're not ready to face it yet. Yeah. And, and, you know, we do such a good job. We talk psychology. You do such a good job of hiding from ourselves what's going on. And there's a part of our mind that understands exactly where the pain is and exactly what it's from. And there's a lot of activities that'll draw that out. You know, there's a lot of activities that'll push us to our limit. And those, it's like, like Wayne Dyer used to say, like, when you squeeze an orange, what do you get? Mm -hmm. orange, juice. orange juice. When you squeeze you, what do you get? Mm, whatever you are. Right? Yeah. yeah. Is there, are you fucking made out of anger on the inside? Are you made out of suffering and pain? Or are you made out of joy and happiness? Mm -hmm. When life puts pressure on you, how do you respond? And I find that to be a beautiful translation when you think about all the people that I have in my life now, like how I've, you talk about who you surround yourself with. I'm surrounded by amazing people. When they get squeezed, I see beauty come out. Mm -hmm. I see intelligence. I see innovation. I see new ways of thinking. I see trying and I see always being a student, wanting to learn more. Now, maybe if you know subconsciously what's inside you isn't that great, you're avoiding the squeeze. You're avoiding situations in life that will squeeze you because you don't like what's in there. You don't want other people to see it. But that squeeze is the only way you improve your situation. It's the only way you build your confidence. You know, you mentioned earlier that when you're still, things come to the surface. And I think it's very similar with when the heat gets turned up. You know, like the way that they purify gold is that they heat up this vat of gold and the impurities rise to the top. And the hotter it gets, the more fine of impurity will rise. And that's where it can be scooped up. You cannot make that gold better without turning up the heat. You can't make the impurity come to the top. And at the top would be like your conscious, where you're aware of where you're getting in your own way, why you keep getting in fights, why you keep leaving before you get hurt, whatever it is that's sabotaging yourself. But you got to be willing for ugly to come out. You got to be willing to see that like, I'm, I'm not a strong person all the time, or I've created this whole world where I'll never be exposed as being weak in this area and face that demon. But when you do, man, like it's really usually not nearly as hard as what you're afraid it would be to take that next step and to overcome some of those things. Talk about, talk about your podcast. What's the name of it? Bigger Pockets. Bigger Pockets. Yeah. And uh, so you took over that podcast. You yeah. said you were a guest on it. Yeah, no I was shit. a guest on it, and it was run by the guy who started the company, Josh Dorkin, and his first employee, Brandon Turner. Brandon's my best friend. Love that guy. And uh, Josh stepped down, and so they had different people within the company co-hosting with Brandon, but they didn't really know real estate investing. And my book had done well, and I wrote that second book, and I went on the podcast to talk about the, the Burr book. 
And then I started doing other people's podcasts to promote it. And I just basically developed the skill of speaking as basic as that sounds, how to articulate a thought and keep someone engaged with what you have to say. And uh, Brandon was able to show them like, hey, we need to get David as the co-host of this thing. He's really good. The people really like him. So I was able to jump into this as like the first podcast thing I'd ever had. We get 300,000 downloads a month or something. It's a really, really big real estate podcast. And all we do is interview people every week and ask them, how do you make money with real estate? Sometimes there's some guy who's got six houses and he's a school teacher and he says how he finds the deals. Sometimes it's someone who buys 200 houses a year. They're a big hedge fund manager. But it's all free information. That's what the website's about is how you can learn how to invest in real estate for free without going to spend 50 grand on some course that some guy's going to rip you off type of a deal. That's pretty damn cool. And uh, you talked about one thing that you've learned on your podcast there and just from doing it more is the ability to speak. And that's certainly anybody you listen to, even from Rogan to Ferris to anybody else. So if you've been along for the ride, you've seen their progression. You've seen them go from how they first started out to where they are now. What are some other takeaways that you've gotten from hosting the podcast? Um, I've learned how to take what someone else is saying who's maybe not a great speaker and pull out what they were trying to communicate and maybe lay it out a little more clearly so other people can understand the point they were making. I've learned how to get really good at drawing analogies. I've, I probably mentioned the MMA thing like four or five times with you because I'm sure a lot of your listeners are into that, right? If you were a former fisherman, I'd be using completely different analogies to communicate these points we're trying to make because I think a lot of us... We've got an operating system. We've got Microsoft Windows that our brain works with. And if you're feeding in information from some Apple software, you're going to catch 20% of what's being said. So you really want to learn how to take information, package it in a way that their brain can understand and give it to them that way. That's another big thing. And then just kind of how to navigate when you go from, I was a police officer, blue collar job, to I'm an authority that everyone in the country is looking up to to teach them real estate. It's a really big shift in opportunity that opens up for you. It, it's me being squeezed, right? And a lot of the stuff that's coming out is like thoughts like, I don't deserve this. This is only going to last for so long and this ride's going to end like that. Um, opportunities for me to see ways I'm doubting myself, ways my confidence can grow, where, where the old patterns are still existing that I didn't recognize because it wasn't that hot, right? Like the heat was yeah. a certain degree. The impurities came up. The gold looked great. You step into this world, all of a sudden, there's a bunch of junk that comes out of it. So that's another thing that I've learned. And, and I've almost become addicted to that. How do you take the next step? Not because you want to be a big shot, but because you know that when you get into that next, getting into a ring with someone that wants to knock you out will force you to see the parts of yourself that you didn't see when you were sitting at a desk working through an Excel spreadsheet. And if you're addicted to that growth, man, the world's your oyster. You could do anything and it's a beautiful place and you come across beautiful people. When you live as a slave to fear of what might come out of you, you're just gonna live in a constant state of frustration. And I think Rogan, he, he mentioned that in like a real long diatribe that he had about people that don't follow their passion. They just take the safe road. You usually don't end up happy, which leads to you looking for that happiness in unhealthy ways, which leads to you know an unhealthy life. Really tackling that fear of being okay to see what comes out of you and having the faith and the belief that you can make it cleaner. It doesn't, it won't stay ugly. Once you see what's in there and you fix it, it'll be better. Um, this podcast was another step in that direction. Hell yeah, dude. It's been, it's been amazing having you on. Uh, we'll link to your podcast in the show notes as well as your three books and the other books that you've mentioned. I think I saw Ryan taking notes back there. So we'll get those all linked up for people to read. Where can people find you online? Your best bet is Instagram. I'm David Green 24 I try to answer all the messages that come in through there. 
I've got a blog, greenincome.com, where I basically just like write articles, teaching people stuff about real estate investing and wealth building. And then I'm, I'm David Green 24 on whatever your platform is, LinkedIn, Facebook. And then I also have a profile on BiggerPockets. So if you're at all interested in real estate investing, it's a it's a free website. Everything is is free, basically. There's all the information you could want. You can message me on there and I can help put you in touch with maybe a local group of, of investors that get together and meet. Um, and I would just encourage everybody who's listening to this, if you if you like the conversation about mindset, don't let that be something that passes your mind and you think, oh, that was cool and let it go, right? Immediately start looking for other people that are in Kyle's world and trying to figure out what are the similarities and what was said and how can I keep? You want to get those hooks in really deep to where you get addicted to where you recognize I'm the only one who's holding me back. And if I want to overcome this, where am I being a victim? Where am I allowing myself to play small because I'm afraid, right? Where am I avoiding the relationship that'll help me go to the next level because I'm afraid of them seeing what gets squeezed? And you'll find that, man, like I've never met a human being who took this road and says, I regret it. I wish no one would have saw what was really in there. Like every person's, I wish I would have done it sooner. So I think it's an awesome thing you're doing here. Awesome, brother. It's been a pleasure having you on. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to the podcast, guys. Remember, go over to kingsboo.com. That's K-I-N-G-S-B-U.com. Hit me up on Instagram or Twitter at kingsboo, and I will answer any and all of your questions. But don't DM me because I don't check the DMs. Just hit me up on a regular post with your question, and I'm happy to answer. If you go to kingsboo.com right now and enter your email address, you will get every supplement I take. I've got my morning supplements for energy and cognitive function. I've got my pre-workout to make sure I maximize my gains and endurance. And I also have my nighttime, which might be the most important time to take the right supplements. You'll get all that and more at kingsboo.com by just leaving your email address for me. And guess what? I'm not going to bombard you with bullshit. You're going to get one monthly newsletter. And that newsletter is going to go over all sorts of cool stuff covering the latest guests that I've had on, what books I'm reading, what I'm gaining and gleaning out of those books and anything else that I find attractive. So the welcome letter obviously goes over October's guests, but it also goes over this new protocol I'm going to do, the Paul Stamets microdosing protocol. So check it out there, kingsboo.com. Thank you guys, and I'll see you next week.